This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Dennis Welch, and uh, I was just on Dr. Karen's show. I had the privilege of being on her show, and uh, we spent some time talking about finding our legacy in this life and being encouraged to go out and get it and not be afraid. George Gallup Jr. said to Dennis Welch, whatever you do, Dennis, be a writer. Last time we talked about Dennis's book, Writing Expertise, and his publishing company, Be Articulate. Today, we focus on his other writing passion, songwriting. For more than 50 years, Dennis Welch has gone into his writing room and worked as if Garth Brooks or Adele were eagerly waiting outside his door to record his next song. The author of 500 songs, many of which have been heard on the radio. Dennis is also open for Poco, worked with Kansas songwriter Carrie Livgren, and a host of other notable musicians and songwriters. In early 2020, he connected with Rich Herring, a talented producer and the lead guitarist for Little River Band. They began their working relationship with an inspirational song, Why Not Me? After recording that song, Dennis sent it over to Nashville veteran producer, record company owner, and manager, Tony Mantor. And when Tony heard the song, he immediately decided to record it and change the title of his forthcoming album to Why Not Me. The song was released in December of 2020. It's been played all over the United Kingdom and climbed the New Music Weekly Country Charts stayed on those charts for 25 weeks and in the top 10 for a whopping 15 weeks. The song even inspired a children's book that Dennis is writing with his granddaughter, Alexis, by the same name, Why Not Me? The Why Not Me experience encouraged Rich and Dennis to continue their partnership to record an entire album of new music. In September of 2021, Dennis released his first commercial album in more than 20 years, What Love Makes Us Do. Dennis lives in Texas with his wife, Susie, and he says, in many ways, I feel like I'm just getting started. So Dennis, welcome back to the show, The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I couldn't keep from smiling during that. That was, that was awesome. Last time we talked about your book writing and how you help other authors and the publicity you get for them. And this time we're focused on your music. And I know that that's close to your heart. It's really your passion. And I want you to tell us about this album that just came out and the album that's really called What Love Makes Us Do. So tell us a little bit about the album. And then I want you to to share a song with us from that album right at the outset. Let me just begin by saying that this uh, album came out of nowhere. I thought I was done recording, quite honestly. I recorded an album in 2000 uh, called Songs from My Window Seat. And recording seemed like a lot of trouble. 
so when I wrote Why Not Me, uh, Susie was kept hearing walking past my writing room and I was playing it on the piano. And so one night she she sort of burst into my writing room and said, okay, that's enough. I don't want to hear this through the door anymore. I want to hear it from you. And she sits down next to me and I sang it to her. And when I finished, she said, you know, this is the best song you've ever written. She said, what are you going to do with it? And I said, you know what? I don't know. I said, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I have no idea. I put it on my prayer list in the mornings. I began to pray about it because I felt like, you know what? I'm getting older. I might run out of time and this stuff might wind up in a drawer or something. So I asked God for some help. And lo and behold, I'm in Nashville. Susie and I are there for the night. And we had dinner with our friend, Rich Herring and his wife and their two adopted, beautiful adopted children. And he says to me, you know, what are you working on? And I said, well, I, I just finished a song that Susie thinks is the best thing I've ever done. And he goes, well, what are you going to do with it? And I said, that's the million dollar question. I have no idea what to do with it. He goes, well, why don't you sing it to me? And so I said, here in the restaurant? And he goes, right here, just sing it a cappella." So I just start singing, there's a mountain wide and high, reaches halfway to the sky. And I got through the chorus, the first chorus, and he put his hand up and he said, you know, he was emotional. He could hardly speak. And he said, you know, Susie's right, first of all. And then second of all, I'm supposed to help you with this. Did you know this? And that's where it all started. We did Why Not Me? And then we did I Can't Remember. After that song, he called me and said, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I know when something special is happening and I feel like that's happening for us here. And um, let's do some, uh, let's do a record. So that's how it happened. Well, I can certainly say this. I have listened to the entire album and it's rare, first of all, for me to say what I'm going to say right now. I love every song on the album and that is not typical. Usually there'll be a song you really like or two, and the rest of the album's kind of okay. I do have a favorite on here. However, even with that, I still love every song on the album. And for me, you know, it's kind of a, a country sort of vibe, which I'm not really a country music aficionado per se. My favorite music is sort of black gospel and then the blues. And the way I would talk about it is the blues is very similar to country in a lot of ways. And if I think about the history of Black people, the blues is the Black person's country music. (laughs) And so there's a way in which I sort of can connect with it in, in that sense. And so I want the audience to get a feel for the album as well and for the song that is Why Not Me. So let's go ahead and just have them enjoy Why Not Me right up front. There's a mountain wide and high It reaches halfway to the sky And in my heart I know That I'm supposed to climb All the fears down in my soul Tell me that I might lose control But no matter what they say I'm climbing anyway Cause why not me? Why can't I 
I'll never know if I don't try Yeah, I might fail and I might fall But it's just a mountain after all So why not me? There's an ocean deep and blue It stretches out in front of you And on the other side Is everything you dreamed of So say a prayer and then set sail Stay the course and you'll prevail And when the doubts start whispering Just lift your voice Just an ocean, nothing more So why not me? Why not me? Why can't I? I'll never know if I don't try Thank you so much, Dennis, for recording this beautiful song, Why Not Me? We just heard it right now. Now, tell us a little bit, Dennis, about the backstory. What does this song mean? What was the inspiration for it? How did you get to Why Not Me? First of all, it's what I say to people all the time. I'm the encourager in my group, and I'm glad to be that. Especially, I think men get older. They feel a little less like there's a chance they can dream or whatever. And I don't believe that. And so I'm the one who always says, people will come to me and say, you know what I really want to do? I really want to do this. And they'll tell me what it is. And I'll say, well, why not you? Why can't you do this? Who told you that you couldn't do it? Because it's not true. So it's what I say anyway, all the time. I think I'm surprised at the poetry myself. I read a Bruce Springsteen uh, article in AARP magazine a while back, and he said, you know, I have kind of a weird job. Uh, I go into a room and I create something out of nothing. And it's hard to even think about taking credit for it because it feels like sometimes a song just just lands on you. That's how I feel about this song. You know, I, I listen to it still and think, wow, 
where did that come from? You know, and I think it's as close to God as we can get that kind of creativity because that's ex nihilo. That's we're mirroring the creator when we do that, I think. And it's uh, it's very mysterious. That's all I can say. And cool, too, by the way. Well, what I think is wonderful is that you're really speaking about inspiration and the song is coming to you from beyond you, yet it's coming through you. And one of the things I like about Why Not Me is this whole notion about this, the mountain and being able to climb that mountain and get to a place of significance in some way, you know? And when I think about leadership and I think about business people, many people stop themselves because it's hard sometimes to see that it could be them, you know, at the next vista or the next place. And so I see this song as one of inspiration and encouragement also for the business executive in the business community. Because when I think about marketplace ministry leaders, God has them there for a purpose and they have to step into that purpose and recognize that he's the one, just like he's resourced you to create the music, God is also resourcing them to live that why not me refrain in their lives as well. Right. Well put. So tell us then more generally about your musical journey. When and how did you get started in music to begin with? Was this something from childhood? I mean, where did it come from? Well, it also came out like this record. It came out of the blue. I always loved listening to music on the radio growing up, but I, I didn't play a musical instrument. Uh, my older brothers sang a little bit. They did some gospel stuff and, but but there weren't really music wasn't really part of the deal, you know, in my household. And uh, and my dad, uh, you know, loved country music, and but he didn't play an instrument, and he certainly didn't sing. And that might have been better for the world. I don't really know, <laughs> you know. So one night, driving home from a date, I'm just driving down the street, and I start hearing this song called a land far away and it's about you know uh the, oh, they tell me about a land far away and you know about heaven and all this and so anyway so when i got home you know i wrote it down i, I don't think i even recorded it because i didn't know what to do i just thought this was just weird and so the next day i went into my little job there i was selling furniture and the guy i worked for uh always kept his ovation guitar under the desk and thank god he did and so I was singing the song to remember it because I wanted to remember it. And I thought this will be the only song I ever write. And I just would love to remember this song. And so he says, what are you singing after a little while? And I said, oh, it's a song I wrote, you know, driving home last night. And he goes, well, let me get my guitar out and play it with you and let's see what happens. And when he started playing this song, it was kind of otherworldly. And it was, it was beautiful. The hook was set at that point. And when we finished, he said that. He said, man, this is beautiful. He goes, where in the world? You don't even play an instrument. And I said, well, I just heard it out of the air, to be honest with you. And I said, so he said, well, look, go out and buy a cheap guitar. Spend, don't spend more than $100 and, because then you can give it away if you don't like it. And I went out and did just that. I went out and bought a $100 Ventura guitar. And I started learning chords. My problem was I couldn't learn chord progressions without hearing words. When I used to tour, people, kids especially would come up to my record table and they would say, you know, I, I want to be a songwriter like you. And I would say, well, first of all, I'm not sure you do. 
because it'll make you wake up in the middle of the night parsing a single word or phrase that you're you, you're not sure about. It's a rock in your shoe. I said, but here's the other part is if you do want to do this, when you drive to the store to buy your groceries and you turn your radio off, do you hear music? You know, do you hear ideas? Do you see a title scroll across your face? And if the answer is no to that, I mean, you can hone it once you have that, but nobody can make you have that. You know, it's not like I set out to be a songwriter. That was the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing. And, you know, but God had other plans. And so it was a very nice surprise. Well, that's interesting, too, because you're really talking about having a gift and then having that gift manifest itself. And then you become aware of it. And then you facilitate the gift, like getting the guitar and polishing it around, so to speak. However, without the gift to begin with, there's nothing to polish. That's right. So when you were first in the car on that date, how old were you about? Uh, I was 17. And prior to that, you had not written any songs. You hadn't really shown any big interest in music. Not at all. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. I will just add one thing that if I ever get to meet Don McLean, I'm going to hug him because the song that really I've never been able to get over, I finally recorded it on a record in the 90s, was uh, Starry, Starry Night, uh, the song about Vincent Van Gogh. was riding with a friend. I was probably 15. I wasn't even driving. So my friend was like 17. And so we're driving and this, you know, the old radios were kind of crappy and, you know, and so not great speakers and all that. But all of a sudden, Starry, Starry Night came on this radio, Dr. Karen, and I almost asked him to pull over for a minute because it was such a moment, you know, and I was so smitten by that. I'm like, wow, you can do that. It was kind of like the first time I read Charlotte's Web when I was seven. You can do that with words. And so that quest really probably started there. I didn't know that that was my quest, but it just imprinted me. And, uh, you know, when I end my shows with that song, every, every show that I don't do a lot of gigs anymore, but I, I end with that. And so, so there were some harbingers that maybe there was something like that going on, but come on. I mean, that, I had no, no clue that this was going to be a lifelong work, you know? So once you got started, how would you say that your family either supported it, hindered it, or what role did they play once they realized that you were headed this direction? Well, here's what I found out. So after I had recorded two albums, my second album came out and was being played kind of everywhere. And it was, a, it was a Christian rock record. And I walk into my mother's house and there's a, there's a publishing, a song publishing contract out on the bar. I picked it up and I'm looking at this and it's a song that my mother wrote with the great Floyd Tillman, one of the all timers. And she knew him. And, uh, and I think her fit, his fiddle player drove her to work every night and that like her was her ride kind of thing. And so somewhere in there, she wrote a song with Floyd Tillman. She never even told me that. And so I said, mama, why didn't you tell me about this before? Typical mother, right? She said, well, I know how hard the music business is, and I really didn't want to encourage you to go into that. I wanted you to decide to do it yourself. Like, you can't not do it. That's the only reason to do it. And so it turns out that there was that thread 
of songwriting in there. Uh, I think she wrote the lyrics and Floyd wrote the music. So there was that. The other piece of that, you asked the reaction. So uh, eventually I wrote enough songs to do a, a whole concert. And I found a piano player, young lady that I had known since we were in the nursery in church. So, I, so I've known her, still, still friends with her, by the way, Darlene, and a guitar player. And we did a Sunday night concert at my church, my little church on Pinemont Street. And my dad, it was where my dad and mom, everybody went to church. And so when we finished, the pastor asked my dad to pray to close the service. And it was the first time I ever heard my father's voice break. And he thanked God for what God was doing with me and essentially said, I'm amazed by this. And afterwards, we didn't talk about it or anything. So there was never any kind of like, what do you think you're doing? Getting in the music bit. There was none of that. It was kind of joy, really, you know. And again, you know, like we talked about in the other segment, you know, naysayers can put out a really nice fire uh, with all of their negativity. And I just didn't have, I didn't have any of that. Thankfully. You know, that's so amazing when you said that you've discovered after the fact that your mother had written the song as well. When you talked to her about it, did she see something in you all along such that she might have wondered if you had this gift or not? Or did she just become aware of it at the time you became aware of it? I think it's the second one. I think she became aware of it when I became aware of it. And it was, uh, wow, this is a great question because I'm thinking about that time. And uh, I, I feel like that my family was kind of in shock, really, that this was going on. And I think I was too, to be honest with you. You know, I see this picture of, of sort of like percolation over time, you know, going all the way back to your teacher in elementary school, taking you to the library, you're being exposed to words, you're being exposed to concepts in a broad way, not knowing how those words were going to be used later. And now they're being used in the songs and the songwriting aspect and in music. And it took that 17 years, if you will, to percolate and to morph into this new expression. So all the while, God was sort of like grooming it, growing it like a plant, you know, and then, then it manifests itself. Well, who doesn't want to live like that? I mean, that that's the way I see it, is that, you know, my my from early on, from my early days, you know, I just wanted to do what God wanted me to do in this world. And I still feel that way. I don't have, I'm not attached to an agenda. I, I, want his, I want to know what his agenda is. And the truth is, is that as it's turned out, and I'm, I'm teaching this to my grandchildren now, his agenda was beyond anything I could ask or think. It, it was so surprising that, that there was songwriting. What? You know, it came out of the blue, but it, it but it turned out, you know, that that was when I was 15, I thought I was going to be a pastor. You know what? I am a pastor. I, 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 I pass. I do music and I'm a pastor. I, I do my work every day and I'm pastoring people all the time in my work. And so it doesn't look anything like what I thought it would be. It's better. 
you know, that fits in with a couple of things. When we closed the show last time, I read the scripture about God doing abundantly and exceedingly beyond all we could ask or think. And he's already done that. And he is continuing to do that in your life, which is a great thing. And it's a wonderful thing. And then when I think about my clients and I think about those who are marketplace ministry leaders, some of them thought early on that maybe in order to be in ministry, they had to be in traditional ministry. And they've come to recognize even in leadership, even at work in the marketplace, they're in ministry every day, just like you are, you know, with your songwriting and also the way you're promoting the written works and books of other people. So yeah, God has people everywhere and ministering in a variety of of different ways. So talk to us, Dennis, about these last 18 months, which you've described as remarkable. And you said it's like plugging into 220 and all the lights coming on. What does that mean exactly? So when when Rich and I met, and it it happened after, I was really in a quandary, Dr. Karen, you know, because I, I, you know, uh, there's something about, you know, realizing that you don't have unlimited time. You know, Stephen Jobs said, death is a great motivator. And so there was something about that. I never really felt that before. And all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, I started feeling that, you know, I have this prayer list that I pray through every morning and my mother inspired me to do this. I didn't know she did this till after she passed away. I was going through her stuff and there's all this organized prayer stuff. And I'm thinking I should be doing this, right? So when I put the idea of a publishing partner is what I actually wrote. I didn't write Rich Herring. I just wrote somebody. I just need some, I need some help. I mean, this guy was working at such a high level. I, I would be embarrassed to go to him and say, you know, can you can you do something for me? I mean, help me out kind of thing. So I didn't. But then God is smarter than us. And so he organized this meeting at a, at a little Mexican restaurant that was life-changing. It was life-changing. And when I got Why Not Me back, which is the first song that we did, I sat right here in this spot I'm in right now. And I put my little earbuds in and I listened to Why Not Me and I wept. I was like, are you kidding me? That's possible? I mean, you know what my first thought was? Because I'm a doer. I'm an activator. So you know what my first thought was? I'm going to call him and sign him up to do 20 songs, right? But the Lord spoke to me and said, what are you doing? Why are you stepping in? Why are you coming up here and trying to drive the bus? Why don't you just enjoy the moment for a change? And let's just sit back and watch what I do because it's going to be better. And so, you know, when Rich called me and said, hey, you want to do another one? Well, that was a rhetorical question. Of course, I did want to do another one. And so we did. I can't remember, which is based on, by the way, the story from the first, uh, our previous uh, segment where about my father saying, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with all the terrible things I've done. I don't know what to do. And my mother said, you know, when you bring it to Jesus, it's cast as far as the east is from the west. It's remembered no more. That's what that song is about. It's a love song about forgiveness. And it's kind of a Roy Orbison-ish type of thing. Well, when that song came back, Susie and I listened to it in the car, and I've never had her react to a song or recording like that. When that song ended, that big finish that it has, she swung the door open to the car, and she jumped out in the driveway and screamed at the top of her lungs like a teenager. She, and she goes, what has happened to you? <laughs> 
<laughs> she thought you had sort of metamorphosed it what overnight right in front of her. That's and a beautiful song. I'm so glad you're talking about this song. I can't you. remember because it's one of the ones that I'll find myself singing it around the house because it's kind of got a catchy tune. That's great. You know, and, and I wanted you to talk about the meaning of it. And I said, yeah, I, I, I had a sense that it was, okay, some things have happened that are bad, but I, I don't remember them anymore. Yeah. And I was thinking about how God was saying to us about as far as the East is from the West. I, I thought about that as well, but I didn't know that it was related to your father. And so what a, what a wonderful picture, you know, well, of that song. And, you know, when you write songs like this, you know, what you don't want to do, at least what I don't want to do, is I don't really like going straight at stuff. So I thought, you know, I'm going to turn this into a love song. It's going to feel like a love song, but you don't know who the two characters are. And so when he asked her if she had seen his sins, she looks him in the eye and says, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I have people, I have a pastor in Georgia who's heard everything I've done for the last probably 25 years. And he cannot stop thinking about this song. Every time I talk to him, he tells me, he goes, you know what? He goes, I cannot even listen to it because I'm thinking about that kind of forgiveness that we don't give each other very much, but we're given it all the time. And so anyway, I'm, I'm, that excites me that you, you sing it when you're doing your stuff around your house, that, that makes any songwriter that doesn't think that's cool is lying to you. <laughs> And I'm telling you, a lot of the songs in this album are actually singable. And that's one of the ones that is for sure. And it has deep meaning. And, and I think that songs that are written that have deep meaning, people feel that. I feel it. You know, I feel each song uh, when I'm listening to it. And so it, it's a truly a profound album. And that's one of the songs I wanted you to unpack because it did have subtlety to it. It wasn't straightforward what is it exactly about? And so thank you for talking about it because I did want to ask about it. Oh, thank you. Most songwriters do have a muse that they're sort of paying attention to or get inspiration from. So who would you say is your muse in songwriting? Every love song is about Susie. We you just bet. finished recording a song called If I Live to Be a Hundred that'll be on the new record. And my rich knows, he said, yeah, that's another one about Susie, isn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. So, and on this record, uh, The Magic of Love is about her. She's the one who convinced me actually to put it on the record. I, I hadn't thought about it. And she said, I just love that song. You know, why don't you think about putting it on the record? And then, and then what Rich did with it was just over the top. As far as other songwriter muses, I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Webb. He had five standards that are in the American Songbook in a year and a half. So he was like 19. He was living in Los Angeles. And he wrote Up, Up, and Away, MacArthur's Park. By the time I get to Phoenix, Galveston, and Wichita Lyman, those five standards he wrote in a year. And he said, I went from making $600 a week to $60,000 a month at that time, which was you know, in the 60s, late 60s. That's a lot of money. And he said it it kind of ruined me. It kind of wrecked me. But he has a he has probably the songwriting book for songwriters uh, called Tunesmith. It's brilliant and uh, it's encouraging. You know, 
I look at what he's doing and I, you know, it's a guy who wrote 80 songs just for Glenn Campbell that he recorded. That's, you know, it's like, that's a whole career. That's five careers. And, you know, and I still listen to a lot of new music. I, I, I listen with my grandson to a lot of people. It's people of a certain age, like me, they think that, you know, the truth dies with them. And what I've learned from listening to music with my grandson is that, you know what, there's a lot of great young songwriters around right now. Uh, Ed Sheeran, you know, people like that who, uh, Olivia Rodrigo, you know, uh, Driver's License. Those are great songs that, you know, uh, Billie Eilish, I mean, she's a spectacular writer. I listen to a lot of things and gain inspiration from those things. But then when I sit down to write, I, I'm really, I'm not really trying to fit in any kind of mold at all. No, and that's probably best. And one of the things I liked about you saying that your wife was your inspiration, I kind of got that impression, especially that song that talks about you must have a, a lightning bolt under your sleeve. You yeah, know? right. Yeah, that's her. And that's <laughs> a, that's his wife. I, it's got to be, you know. Yes, it is. I might have mentioned to you, my husband is not the most country music type fan person. And so I was telling him, I said, well, you know, there are love songs in country music. He said, no, there's not any love songs. No, that's right. Nobody stays married in country music, right? <laughs> it's a difficult genre for him. So I started yeah. telling him the words to that song. And he said, you just made that up. He thought I made it up because I've been known to make up <laughs> stuff. I said, no, it really does say that. <laughs> you know? oh, that's said, great. There really is a love song here. So I think what makes this song powerful is that it's based on something real. So mm -hmm. a real relationship that you actually have, it, you didn't make it up, so to speak. Okay. And that's why people can connect with it and relate mm -hmm. to it. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't know what you were going to answer on that, but I know his wife's in there somewhere. I just absolutely. She feeling, is. For sure. yeah, she's in there everywhere. But anyway, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so talk about a song that you also wrote with uh, Hall of Fame writer Alan Shamlin and how did that experience change you? What song did you write and how did it change you? That's a, an awesome experience. It was just an awesome experience. You know, you, everybody thinks uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a new, has a, a, a Netflix show called Jerry before Seinfeld. And he talks about how from the stage, he goes back to the first place he ever did stand up when he was a kid. And he talks about, he says from the stage, hey, I know what you're thinking out there. If I'd have just had a little more time, I could do what he does. And then the next scene shows him sitting in this big open area like a park. He is surrounded by yellow legal paper with ballpoint pen on it. And you know what that is? That is every single bit that he has written since he first started his very first, it looked like 100 yards. So songwriting, people think, oh, you know, anybody could do that. Why do you even get paid? It's three minutes, right? So here's what happened. And I'll, I'll try to be brief, but uh, I pitched a song, my version of Worth My Time. This is God's uh, timing because I don't understand his timing. I'm always telling him when I want him to do stuff and instead of doing it my way, does it right, okay? So I had met Alan Shamlin several years before that. And we had become fast friends and he had become sort of a mentor to me. He lives in Nashville. I'm in Texas. When we would go there, we'd see him and his wife. And I just love the guy. He's from Houston. We had a lot in common. But, I, you know, but I said, listen, I'm the one guy who's never going to ask you for anything. Okay. I'm your friend. 
I, I don't need anything. Several years goes by. Now think about the timing on this, how crazy it is. I'm driving home from Louisiana, from Susie's people. We're driving back one day and I get a call from Alan and he goes, hey man, how can I help you with your songwriting? And I said, Alan, remember what I said? I'm your friend. I don't need anything, but look, I appreciate you. Okay. I'm not making light of it, but I, I, I just want you to be my friend. Okay. One week later, I pitched my version of Worth My Time to a little independent artist in Nashville, and I get this big dim the lights email back from them that says, oh my gosh, this is a great idea. And this could be I Can't Make You Love Me, which Alan and Mike Reed wrote for Bonnie Raitt, which is in the American Songbook. This could be that. And so, but you got some more writing to do. Are you willing to do that? So I forwarded their note to Alan and I said, Alan, here's the song. I clicked my MP3 in there of the current version. And I said, all I want to know is, are they crazy? Because if they're crazy, I'm not tearing this song apart. I've been singing for 20 years. I already got it on another record. Okay. So a week goes by. And I get a call from him. I'll never forget this, Dr. Karen. He calls me on a Sunday afternoon. He said, hey, man, you might want to sit down. This is going to take a while. So I sit down and he starts to talk. My head was spinning by the end of this conversation. He said, first of all, these people are right. This is a spectacular idea. They're also right that you ain't done yet. Okay. And so you're going to need to do some more writing. And here's the deal. I would co-write this with you because I think this is a very important song about people who live in abusive situations who decide that they're going to get stronger and walk away, or they're going to cause the other person to change if that's possible. But then if that's not going to happen, they're not going to stay in that kind of mess. And this song gives people license. And he said, so the reason I'm not going to co-write it with you is because er nobody knows you. And he said, and they know me and they'll think you sat in the room while I wrote it. And he goes, that's not true. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be your editor. And every night at nine o'clock, I'm going to call your house and you're going to sing me the next version of this song until we have it rewritten. What a blessing. Like this guy's that's got nothing else blessing. to do. Right. And so he wasn't kidding. Every night at nine o'clock, he called me. I got to where I didn't want to take his calls, to be honest. I was just tired of the song after a month or two. So we get the whole song written except the last verse. And I could not get the last verse written. And I wrote 50 last verses. Here's the lesson. So we go up to Nashville. We have dinner with him and his wife at their house. And I'm hoping he doesn't even ask about the song because now we've been doing this for six months and I'm just I'm tired of it. We had prayed about it. We cried about it, the whole thing. Well, he says, let's go in the writing room, my writing room, and let's hear that latest last verse. I sing it for him, and he goes, no, that's not it, man. He goes, you know what? A great song puts you in a trance, and you want to be left in a trance by your last verse. And I said, Alan, let me ask you a question. We've been messing with this song for six months. And I said, do you write like this? He didn't say a word. He reached under his writing table and he pulled out a dictionary thick stack of legal paper, yellow legal paper, all in ballpoint pen, no technology. 
and slid it across the table to me. He said, Dennis, this is one song I've been working on for seven years. Yes, we do write like that. So the end of the story is one night I was just fed up with it. I could not get this thing done. And so anyway, one night he calls me nine o'clock faithful guy. Right. And he says, let me hear that latest last verse. I sing it to him. No, it doesn't work. Big surprise. I said, Alan, wait, before you go, I said, can I ask you a question? I said, do you know what this last verse might be? And he goes, yeah, I probably do. And I said, well, if it's not going to wreck your career to put your name on a song with an unknown Texas songwriter, why in the world don't you get in your writing room and put us out of our misery? Okay. He says, okay, give me two weeks. And I'm thinking two weeks, we've been working every night for six months. You need two more weeks. He leaves the phone, Dr. Karen. He comes back in five minutes and he goes, what about this? Is it worth this pain? Are your words that bruise? Should I be the one you love to use? If I have to ask, then I should know that it's worth my time to let you go. Mic drop. Okay. Yeah. And I said, you came up with that in five minutes. And he goes, you know what, Dennis, I don't want to pull rank on you or nothing. My sword is sharper than yours. Okay. I do this every day. And he said, don't think that I hadn't been thinking about this. And so it's done now go record it. And so I did a demo and then, and then I finally did this recording and now there's some big names that are sniffing around it. Uh, we'll see what happens with all that. But Alan said, you know what, this might be one of the most important songs I've ever written because of what it says to people, you know, and he's a strong believer. He's an amazing, amazing guy. So, yeah, so that's where that came from. So. And for people who want to know, that is on the album. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. It's a great song, too. I mean, I, I truly, Thank every you. last one of them are great songs. And it's, <laughs> I love hearing the backstories. I love hearing the backstories. And as I heard you talk about the journey of writing these, both you and Alan together, what struck me is the Japanese painter, Hakisai, used to paint all kinds of stuff. But in his room, he had all kinds of paintings on the walls for months and months before he would have the final painting. And so people think, you know, it's just, oh, you just sit down and write it and that's it. But no, there's various iterations. There's a whole process that you go through and he's a famous painter. And now we're talking about, you know, famous songwriters as well. And there's a similar kind of a process to it. So yeah, this is the way it works. And look, you know what? I told a guy today, I was having a, a kind of a counseling call with, with somebody today. And I said, you know, Something happens at age 50, I think, and that is that your work stops being about doing things, and it's about creating a legacy. It's, it's about how people will remember you, and so essentially, your work becomes art. It stops being about how much you can do. It's more about how much impact you can have. Because you see somebody's turned over the, the egg timer now the, the, and the sand is going. And it's like, this cannot just be about getting stuff done and pushing it out the door and pushing it under the door, writing song, 10 songs a day. It needs to be about something that you leave behind. I mean, there's so many analogies. You said painters. I'm saying 
It could be anybody. It could be somebody working in an office and leading people too. So, you know, you've said a number of times, Dennis, something about age. And you and I are both in sort of those senior years. And some of the people who are the executives are also in some of their senior years as well. And in your case, you're still blooming and growing in your senior year. So what would you say to people out there who are even wondering, could something significant happen to me at this time in my life? Is my day actually coming? What would you say to that older person, that that more elder senior individual who might be wondering if they're too old to make a difference? First of all, I, I would say I'm going to hark back to a conversation I had with a young man who lives next door to me. He's 45. And he and his girlfriend moved in here and bought this house. And then the relationship didn't work out and he left. And I loved this guy. And so about a month or two ago, this is years ago. So a month or two ago, she sells the house and I'm out sweeping my, you know, like most big rock stars, I'm sweeping out my garage. Okay. And all of a sudden I see this person lumbering across my front yard and he picks me up and hugs me so hard. He almost breaks my ribs. He put me down and it turned out to be Mike. It's my, it's my guy that I loved. I said, what are you doing, man? He goes, I've been watching you on Facebook and I see what all is happening for you. And he goes, can I tell you something? My nightmare, I'm 45. My nightmare is when I'm 65, I'm not doing work that matters. And here was my answer to him. And I would say this to anybody at any age, unless you proactively plan on doing work that matters, the momentum of the world will sweep you out to pasture. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're too old to do this. There's a new book out called, uh, I think it's called Breaking the Aging Code, and it's written by a researcher. And here's what she's found. In cultures where we don't talk about this stuff, in Asia and stuff, where seniors are revered, people want to know what they think and stuff. Well, they don't age like we do. They're still vital. Their brains are still you know, able to, to do anything they want to do. I mean, they're climbing mountains at 75, 80, 90 years old. And so uh, it's a lie is what it is. And so what you do is, you know, go back to your dreams. Go back to the things when you were a kid and you were thinking, I could be anything. I could be an astronaut. I could be, you know, whatever, a fireman or whatever you want to be. Go back to that and then say, is there really anything stopping me from doing these things? The only thing stopping me, my worst enemy is myself. And I think that's true for most people. Your self-talk will keep you from being that. But but look, you know what? You have great value. You know, Dennis, we've been talking a lot about legacy. And we've been talking about the fact that creating a legacy of impact is something that's done intentionally. One of the songs on this CD that I absolutely love is called I Go Home, because this is a man who's thinking intentionally about his legacy. So would you please do that song for us next? She whispered in his ear, let's get out of here. Go somewhere and pretend that we're in love. He said you may not understand 
But I'm not that kind of man And I can't do the things you're thinking of Cause there's a place I go Where they think I'm still a hero I haven't even conquered a single word Those faces that you see They all want to be like me I'm sure not going to waste that on some girl When I feel the need to run I go home His friends all said he was crazy That he hadn't learned to live But maybe just the opposite was They'd go out and paint the town But he'd rather settle down and Read his favorite kids a tale or two There's a place I go Where they think I'm still a hero I haven't even conquered a single world Those faces that you see They all want to be like me Sure not gone Set on some girl When I feel the need to run I go home Years have passed And some may have Forgotten his face or name I can still recall his will of stone When I'm feeling weak I'm headed for the edge I remember daddy's words And I go home There's a place I go Where they think I'm still a hero I haven't even conquered a single world And those faces that you see They all want to be like me I'm sure not gonna waste that on some girl When I feel the need to run I go home When I feel the need to run I go Dennis, I know I've shared with you privately that this particular song on the CD, I Go Home, is my favorite. And people might think that's a little bit odd because it's a song about a man who's sitting there thinking about whether he should take this woman up on her proposition for this extramarital affair. And he, to his credit, thinks about his children at home. He thinks about his wife. And I love the lines where it says, you know, there's a place I go where they think I'm still a hero. I just love that. He's being very intentional about it. And then he goes on to say something like those faces that you see, they all want to be like me. And he remembers it, and he's gotten this legacy even from his father. This song has just been so profoundly meaningful to me when I think about the executives that I work with and the legacy they're creating. If you're not intentional in thinking about these kinds of issues, 
the devil can send a little wrinkle in there and get you right off track. So that's mm-hmm. this song is just really meaningful to me. So you're the writer of the song. So what else would you say about it? That's just me as the consumer. And I love it. I sing it all the time at home. Well, all I'll say about it is that I wrote it when my, my boys, our two boys were young. I looked at them and I thought, you know what? I just can't mess this up. That's where it came from. And that's a great place for it to come from, again, from the heart, from reality, and, and just having that picture in your mind to keep you on the straight and narrow. So I hope that the executives who are listening to this show will also be inspired by this song because we know there are many traps in the workplace that can really get people in trouble. So again, Dennis, tell people how they can get a hold of you, how they can reach you for your business, your music, the publicity for books, and also tell them about the book you're writing with your granddaughter, the one that's on Why Not Me, and when that's coming out. My company website is www.bearticulate, like a command, bearticulate.com. The music site is welch-words.com. And uh, the music is available on all streaming services. It went everywhere. When the record company put it out there, it sits on iTunes and, you know, you name it. So that you can buy it or download it there. Um, if you want a signed copy, by the way, you can come to my to the Welch Word site and I'll mail you a signed copy. So my granddaughter is a wonderful illustrator. And when this song came out, Why Not Me came out, somebody in the school, great motivational speaker, he heard it and called me and said, You have to get this in the schools because we're dealing every day with kids who have people at home telling them they can't. And so uh, this this should be a children's book. This should be a choral arrangement. It should be sung at every graduation. Figure out how to do that. And so I, I thought, well, that's a word for me. And so I went to my granddaughter. I said, wouldn't it be fun to write a book together? And so I just saw the pictures this week of the first draft of the pictures of just killed me and they're so good so the book will be out this summer why not me children's book and hopefully it'll we'll we'll try to get it in the schools we'll see if that happens but that is phenomenal so double talent her illustration and your music that's got to be a winning combination i hope so thank you so dennis as we're wrapping up today i want you to share your additional words of wisdom that you want to leave from my audience of corporate executives and give us a little hint about what else you would like to see happen in your life that maybe hasn't happened just yet. So my words of wisdom, if, they, if they're that wise, are to not be afraid. When you hear and you feel inspiration to be or do something, and you know it's the right thing, you know, it's okay to have counselors, but don't, have, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Go do it. There's something that you can't see when you're sitting on the shore that when you get out there, all these things, opportunities and amazing things are just sitting right out there. And so go get them. That's my words of wisdom. And as far as what hasn't happened for me, you know, every artist wants their music to be out there. And I would love for these songs to be used in film and major artists recording them, of course, and those kind of things. That would be wonderful. It doesn't have to happen for me to feel like it's uh, I'm fulfilled or anything. It's just something that I think, you know, that would be I hope that this stuff salts the culture and I'd love to see it get out there and do that. And we'll see how that happens in time if it happens. But 
Well, I just love the fact that you spoke the vision out loud, and we're just going to come right alongside you you. and pray that God makes it happen just that way or greater. (laughs) So thank you. So thank you again, Dennis, for being here with me on the second segment of the show. And I'd like to close today's show with verses from Psalm 92, and we'll read 12 through 14. And it says, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So may you continue to flourish and may you continue to prosper no matter, even if you reach a hundred or beyond. (laughs) You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.